Today we begin part 12, part 12 of our study through the book of 2 Timothy. All these sermons are online, they're free, they're on SoundCloud through lynchbrickcitychurch.com or through searching Lynchburg City Church on SoundCloud. It's been a hot minute since we were in 2 Timothy, second week of December, so in the event that you don't remember or this is your first night, just a, a brief introduction. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter sometime between 64 and 67 AD. Nero is the emperor of Rome. It's not exactly a popular time to be a Christian at all. He's writing this letter. This, this occurs during his second Roman imprisonment. And unlike his first Roman imprisonment, which would have occurred between 60 and 62 AD, which by all accounts is more of a house arrest under Roman guard, this second Roman imprisonment is quite different. He's in a jail cell, in a dungeon, coming toward the end of his life. In fact, 2 Timothy has often been regarded as Paul's last will and testament, for shortly after he writes this letter, he is executed for being a Christian. And he's writing this letter to Timothy, a young man who is a pastor at the church in Ephesus, that's modern-day western Turkey, a, a young man that he knows quite well, that he's very close to, it's, it's very dear to his heart, and he's really wanting to encourage Timothy. If you're taking notes and you, you like taking notes, the theme of this letter is, is all about persevering and continuing in the faith, no matter how difficult it may get. That's what he wants Timothy to do. We all experience, as some of you probably have, high points and low points in our Christian life. There are just some, some difficult parts of being a Christian. Sometimes it lasts for days, weeks, months, for a while. We hit those low points, and before we know it, we haven't picked up our Bible, and don't even get me started, or the last time we even came to an assembly, a gathering like this was a hot minute. It just, us and God, we're not super close right now. We're, we're not where we should be in our faith journey, in our walk with the Lord. That can happen to us. That can happen to a, a young pastor as well. But the issue is not that it can or can't happen, but what do you do when it does? You don't just stay okay with being stuck at that low point. That's what this letter's about. It's about driving on, getting unstuck, continuing in our walk with the Lord. And so that's where we're picking up today in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, this begins part 12 of our series, starting in verse 1. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God, Timothy implied, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing, by his appearing, and his kingdom. We'll stop there for a second. When I talk especially to unbelievers, their favorite attribute of God, anyone want to guess? There it is. All right. It's love. That's what I hear all the time. When I talk to unbelievers, that's, that's one thing they know. They can, they can zone in on love. God's a loving God. I remember witnessing to this one lieutenant uh, a couple of years ago, uh, 15, 16, summer of 15 or 16, and... He was telling me, oh, well, no, 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 hold on. God wouldn't punish me. He's, he's a loving God. Doesn't the Bible say that? We have a tendency to zone in on certain attributes or characteristics of God that we really, really like. 
while ignoring the other ones that we don't like so much. A.W. Tozer, I think, says it quite well in this regard. The vague and tenuous hope, Tozer says, that God is too kind and too loving to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the conscience of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity. While death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. I don't need to repent. I don't need to to turn to God. I don't need to follow God because he's a loving God. He'll give me a pass. This is not the characteristic that I'm focusing on today because Paul's not. Rather, it's a different characteristic attribute. Jesus Christ, verse 1 of chapter 4, who is to judge the living and the dead. He is a loving God. That's why he sent his son to come on a rescue mission for us. But he's also a just God. He is a just judge who hold all men accountable, who hold all men responsible. In fact, the New Testament, John MacArthur points out, reveals three different judgments. You look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and we see the beam of seat judgment for believers. You go to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, and, and we see another judgment, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of the nations in which believers and unbelievers will be separated. You go to Revelation, not to be confused with Revelations, there's no S on the end of it, but Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and you see the great white throne judgment of unbelievers. It's true, God's a loving God, but he's also a just God, a just judge who hold all people accountable. It's very clear on his appearing, he will come and judge both the living and the dead. A month ago, we celebrated Christmas, the month of Advent. Advent, the, the first arrival, the first coming of, of Christ, of the Messiah. And yet we yearn and look forward to the second coming, the second Advent, when he will come again and make all things new and right. But also that he will judge those who are alive as well as those who have died. Paul's really emphasizing this judicial God here in verse 1 of chapter 4. And so we're actually kind of working backwards through verse 1 because the very first thing he says is, I charge you in the presence of God, a phrase that would not have been lost upon Timothy's ear, a phrase that Timothy would have been well accustomed with at that point in the Roman world. In fact, In the presence was a common format used, that phrase, in the presence was a common format used in Roman courts and also within legal documents of the day. A typical legal summons might have gone something like this, and I quote, the case will be drawn up against you in the court at Hierapolis in the presence of, did you catch that? In the presence of the Honorable Judge Festus, Chief Magistrate. That phrase Paul is inserting there very purposefully. He's already 
made it very clear that God is a just God. He is a just judge. He holds all men accountable. He will hold all men responsible. Therefore, Timothy, Timothy, I'm talking to you now, do this. The charge that he gives him, we see in verse 2. Throw verse 2 up there. It's to preach the word. To preach the word. That's what he's charging him to do. Timothy, you have an obligation, you have a responsibility to do this, to preach the word. I don't care like, whether I'm here or not. I'm, I'm sure like Paul's thinking, like, this might be one of the last correspondence that he has with Timothy. Whether or not I, I'm still alive by the time you're reading this, I imagine he's thinking, like, God will hold you accountable. God will hold you responsible, Timothy. Therefore, I'm charging you in his presence to do this thing. This thing that is preaching. <sighs> preaching. So much to say on it. And I, and I want to stop here and make some, I think, important applications. There are a lot of misconceptions that we have when it comes to preaching. And it's really important to understand this because I think many of us have not only misconceptions in regard to preaching, but unhealthy expectations. You might not even know that you do. I did. I do. Still struggle with it at times. In fact, I didn't really care much about preaching or the Bible, but I don't know. It was around my junior year at Liberty, so this is like 2007, 2007, and, and I, I started caring a little bit more about preaching. And I really enjoyed Wednesday Night Campus Church. I think they call it Campus Community at Liberty now. And I just, man, I was loving it. The lights, the fog, the jokes, the little bit of Bible on the side, I loved it. I loved it so much. Um, in fact, they, at the time, they were holding at Thomas Road, and, like, to give you an idea, like, what a big deal this was to me. Like, I would show up 30, 40 minutes early before the service started. They'd have the doors locked, and I would stand there, and they would, I don't, I don't know if this is a thing anymore, but they would all, like, open the doors at the same time, and I would bolt down the aisle, running, okay, sprinting, down the aisle. You would have thought I was, you know, there to rededicate my life for, like, the fifth time. <laughs> I'm, I'm bolting down the aisle to like grab the, the front closest center mass seat so that I can absorb every ray from those laser lights. Okay? True. It's true. I, I loved it. And, um, and for me, when it came to, to preaching, my criteria was how much am I going to laugh? How, how funny is he going to be tonight? I wanted to be entertained. And I was entertained. From the lights, to the jokes, to the little bit of Bible on the side. I mean, it was awesome. It was awesome. And I don't say this sarcastically. I think how I described it was, was true. But I don't say this sarcastically. Despite that, God used that very powerfully in my life at that time. Despite how I described it. He used it very powerfully um, in my life. And I'm really thankful. Well, I, I get a little bit more mature. <sighs> as my prefrontal cortex began to develop more. And when I was in seminary, I started discovering some really 
talented, we'll call them celebrity pastors, preachers, uh, guys who I, I still today really love. There was guys like Mark Driscoll and John Piper and Matt Chandler and Francis Chan and, and David Platt. I mean, just so many rock star preachers. And I, I think all those guys are, are just fantastic. And really begin to just absorb this rich, deep theology. And, and I mean, these guys can just preach. I mean, it'd be like their sermon's done. I'm like, oh, it's over? Like, oh, wow. It just held my attention that much. It was wonderful. But then my expectations began to take another unhealthy shift when it came to preaching and what I expected. Because for me, like any person that I heard preach, if they couldn't go toe-to-toe and hang with the Chandlers and the Driscolls and the Pipers and the Chans and the Platts and who, whoever else, I was like, whatever. That was kind of lame. That, that was my mindset. It was, it was it's, here's, the, here's the standard, and in any other local area pastor who was preaching, it was just kind of lame. And I, I had this super hyper-critical attitude all the time. All the time. As if the whole sermon that I'd hear, wherever I might have been, was just lame. was lost on deaf ears. And I went out to Fort Knox, summer of 2016. I was there for the summers, many of you know. And I mean, that was not even quite two years ago. And I'm still dealing with that super hyper-critical, just negative attitude when it, when it comes to, to preaching. Because that's how I thought. If, if you can't hang with these, with these all-stars, then it's basically the sermon probably sucks. Or it's on the, it's like a D minus. That's what I thought. And so I'm out at Fort Knox that summer, and I heard some of the most terrible sermons. That's true. They were terrible. And God, um, he used my roommate, Tim McMeans. He's from Dallas, Texas. I told Tim I was going to give him a shout-out today. He's 15 years older than me, and he was also not only my roommate, but my colleague that summer. We worked together. We were training uh, chaplain candidates, that is chaplains who are in their candidacy, they're, they're trying to be full chaplains, and I'm, I would always complain to Tim, that sermon, that sermon sucked, that was just awful, that, did you, I mean, couldn't, taken that more out of context, it was just brutal, and then I think one day Tim was like, okay, but did he say anything heretical? By heretical, I mean, like, was, was there anything, like, false? I mean, was he teaching that, like, uh, if you're baptized, you go to heaven. If you're a good person, you go to heaven. Like, I mean, he just, I don't know. Like, I, I asked him, I'm like, do you even remember saying this? I remember him saying it. I remember him saying it. That's the thing. Sometimes you say things, and you, have no, you don't even remember them. And, like, two years later, the person's like, God just used what you said so powerfully in my life. And I said, I was just thinking, well, I, I guess he didn't say anything heretical. I mean, Tim was like, I, I don't disagree. Maybe it wasn't the best sermon, but... I don't think he said anything false, damning, contrary to God's word. At that point, God really started to convict me in my attitude and my really, I think, just critical spirit when it comes to this thing that Paul cares a lot about. He does. I mean, that's what we're talking about tonight, this aspect of preaching God's word. 
And so I struggled with this, and maybe some of you guys do. Maybe, maybe, you're, on, maybe you're like a young Joe Decreon, and if they don't tell enough jokes, it's a loss, or if there isn't the coolest music, or, you know, it's just, maybe it's the songs, the selection, or whatever, or if they have lights, or they don't have lights, and then, or maybe it's over here, if it's not like this celebrity preacher speaking and delivering God's word, it's just a loss. It's just a wash. And I think we need to be mindful of these things. How God can use, honestly, sometimes the worst sermons. And despite that, just use them to to deeply convict or encourage different people. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you you hear this sermon, right? And you're like, that was the worst thing ever, right? And you're talking to someone, they're like, I felt like every word out of the pastor's mouth was for me tonight. John, John Piper says, when it comes to reading books, books are made of... Books are made up of sentences and paragraphs. And by that, you could read a 300-page book, and if you're anything like me, I'm going to remember, I don't know, 2%. I might remember a couple sentences or paragraphs. Books are made of sentences and paragraphs. I think, to a certain degree, sometimes sermons are too. Now, some of you might walk out of here, and you might be like, (laughs) you're like in the 95, 100% where, I mean, Joe was just throwing the heat tonight. Like everything was sticking that was coming out of his mouth. And others of you might be like, eh, I don't know. Like I remember that 2%, that 3% of maybe what he said, and that's it. You know what I say? I've started to praise God for that 2 or 3%. Praise God for that, that sentence, or that, that 10 second block of time where I felt, I felt I needed to hear that tonight. Needed to hear that tonight. And before you say, okay, well, this guy's really watering down the standard. Someone should tell him about James chapter 3, verse 1. Or has he not? Have we not heard that it was said? Not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Now, before you come and say, like, well, he's watering down the standard. Telling us that, you know, praise God if we, for that 2 or 3%. On the, on the low end. We don't have to always have those home run sermons out of the park. Praise God for that 2 and 3%. I'm not. I'm not at all. I'll, I'll give you an example. Back in November. Though it might have been October. I'm, I'm, with, one of my, I'm with one of my army uh, companies. And I have this chaplain candidate. And uh, I had asked him to preach. I wanted to give him some experience. And so I said, uh, um, I said, well, how long's your... Uh, how long is your sermon going to be today? It's about an hour before the service starts. He's like, oh, I don't know. I said, okay. Um, well, if you had to guess. I don't know. Okay, I'm thinking he might be misunderstanding me at this point. I said, okay, well, when you were practicing, approximately how many minutes was it? He's like, oh, I haven't practiced it. I said, okay. <laughs> Why? I just thought I'd wing it. I said, have you not heard that it was said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers? For you know that we who teach will be judged with the greater strictness. What do you mean? You haven't prepared? It's a a sacred thing when the pastor comes and heralds this word to us. It is. And please don't think I'm trying to water that down whatsoever. I told him, I said, it's not okay. It's not right. And so I want you to go home. I want you to practice. And when we meet again in three weeks to visit one of the other units, you can preach. I'm going to preach today. I was prepared. Um, but I think that's important that we understand that. Understand that. Different extremes, okay? But to be mindful of it. 
There's a, there's a serious tone here when it comes to preaching that Paul has. He's concerned enough that here at the end of, the, in the end of his life, one of the last things he wants Timothy to hear, the last instruction that he gives him is, hey, Timothy, preach the word. Do it. Preach it. In fact, John MacArthur compares at this point Paul's devotion so similar to that of John Knox, who prayed, give me Scotland or I die. How about that for a prayer? Give me Scotland or I die. And yet who later on was compelled to preach, he locked himself, John Knox locked himself in a room and wept for days because of the fearful seriousness of the calling to preach God's word. Now I'm not watering it down. But rather I'm sharing to you, I think, what has happened in many cases in our high-speed internet, consumeristic, American lifestyle that we live in, that, that, that consumeristic mindset has even permeated in many aspects the church. And so if it's not a home run, knock it out of the park sermon, it's just a wash. Be careful with that critical spirit. Be careful with that type of negative attitude. So there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to preaching. It's important that we have a healthy expectation. Well, let's talk about the expectation. The, the very the word, our English word preach, it comes from this Greek word which describes that of an imperial messenger or describes that of a town crier. That's what the word is and, and means. So when he says preach, the, the image really that's, that's put in front of us as we understand what it actually means to preach is that of a town crier, imperial messenger. So a town crier comes into the center of the town and he's like, right? Because he has something really, really important to say and he doesn't want anyone to miss, right? He doesn't want anyone to miss. So he's right at the center of the town and he's saying, hear ye, hear ye, gather around right now. He's loud, he's boisterous, his, his word is just being heard by everyone. That's the job of the preacher, to, to herald this message. And I don't think any of this message, any aspect could be more important than the fact that we are born radically depraved and God-hating. We've inherited this sin nature from our father, Adam. And that God is, oh by the way, a just God who must punish our sin. Despite being loving, he must punish our sin. And that punishment is eternal separation forever in a real place of suffering called hell. That's the stake. But, but God but God shows his love for us. Romans 5a. God shows his love for us. Now, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He sends his son to live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died, to pay the price we could not afford to pay. The salvation is a free gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone. And true faith, true faith always involves Repentance, a turning from our sin, a change of heart, a bowing the knee to Him, not just embracing Him as Savior, but as Lord. So when we, when we think of, like, okay, what does it mean to preach? It is literally, we're heralding the news. We're heralding the, the message, right? The message in this book. It's not, I'm going to just make you laugh the whole time. Or tell you a bunch of jokes and throw in a little Bible on the side. The imperial messenger, the town crier, 
must deliver the news. There's important news to hear. The king wants us to hear his word, his message. That's why James chapter 3 is very clear. Not many of you should become preachers. Not many of you should become teachers. They will be held to a stricter account by God who holds all men accountable, who holds all men responsible. Oh, Timothy, preach the word. And then he goes on to say, in season and out of season. In season and out of season. This phrase is important. In season and out of season. Oh, what could that mean? I think it refers to one of two things, possibly both. I'm going to argue both within the context of what comes before and after this. If you remember, and I didn't mention this in the introductory comments into great detail, but back in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, we, we pull back a little bit of layer of this character named Timothy, and we see something. I'll just read it. For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Preaching is a gift of God. Teaching is a gift of God. Just an observation. It doesn't say which gift it is. Which is in you through the laying out of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love of self-control. The gift that's been given, the spiritual gift that's been given to Timothy is described as this roaring fire that's been mismanaged to a certain degree that hasn't really been cared for or tended to. And this roaring fire has essentially died down to where there's just little embers. Timothy hasn't really been using his spiritual gift. In the next verse, as we saw, this idea that that the verse that is very well known, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a power of love, self-control. It seems that perhaps one of the reasons that Timothy is not using his spiritual gift, and by the way, if you're a Christian here, you have a spiritual gift, and if you're not using it, you're just as wrong as Timothy is. I don't care what the excuses are, you're just as wrong as him if you're not using your gifts to build others up. Oh, by the way, your gifts aren't primarily for you, they're for the people sitting to your left and right. Some of them, you don't even know their name right now. But for whatever reason, it seems that Timothy might might be afraid. The very next verse, right after he says, oh, by the way, this fire has burned down to these little embers, that spiritual gift that you have. So, Timothy, don't be afraid. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but a power of love of self-control. I can just imagine Paul and Timothy conversing back and forth. Timothy, you need to preach. But Paul, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to use those spiritual gifts. I'm scared. You don't know what it's like. Really? In season and out of season, right? It's easy to use our gifts in season. Okay, it's the right time. Out of season? Oh, it's not the right time. It's not the right time right now. That's what we see. In season, out of season, referring to, at least I think in one regard, to Timothy. Preaching? Oh, it's easy to preach when it's in season. It's easy to to do the things we ought to do when it's in season. But when it's out of season, that can be more scary. Or applying this, I think, secondary to his listeners, in season, out of season. But Paul, they're not going to want to hear what I have to say. Preach. But Paul, if I go on The View and they ask me if abortion is sin, I don't want to tell them it is because they might be mean to me or come down on me or make nasty social media posts about me. Timothy, you tell them what you need to tell them. I don't care if it's out of season. You preach. You proclaim the truth. You have a responsibility. That's what I think we need to see from this. So he says, do it. And oh, by the way, 
Here is how it looks like. He says, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove and rebuke deals with correcting misbehavior. It deals with correcting false doctrine. And oftentimes when we, we meet people and we're inviting them to join us in our gatherings, which we should be inviting people to come and join us in our gatherings because in the act of inviting them, whether it's to a midweek gathering or a Sunday gathering like this, we are calling them to come and follow Jesus with us. It is a call to discipleship. And oftentimes when you, when you do that, you find out people sometimes, they need to be reproved, they need to be rebuked because of false theology or different error. That's the responsibility of the preacher. That's, that's part of what preaching's about. Preaching is about reproving and rebuking, and in the essence of that, exposing sin. Exposing sin, because there's a lot of sin that we have, a lot of sin that we're dealing with. It's the story of the Bible. People say, that Joe guy talks about sin a whole lot, because the Bible talks about sin a whole lot. You open the Bible, Genesis, right? the very beginning, and there's a a sin problem. And all through the pages of Scripture, sin, sin, sin. And so part of the role in preaching is in proclaiming and heralding the words of this book that our sin is exposed in front of us. Because every day, every week, we're battling sin. And so we come here Right? And the word is proclaimed. And we're exposed. And some of, you, some of you, no one knows, right? No one knows what's going on. No one knows the sin that you've been battling with this very afternoon before you even showed up today. Or this week. Or whatever it was. But that's what God's word is meant to do when it is heralded, when it is proclaimed. To reprove and rebuke. That is to expose sin. And he says... Do this, Timothy, with complete patience and teaching. And oh, by the way, exhort. I don't always do that well with the exhort part. I suppose with the prosperity gospel preacher types and with the trophy for every single participant types, I figure sometimes there's, well, there's enough encouragement. There's enough being built up. It's easy sometimes to forget that last part, the exhort part. Oftentimes my mom listens to these sermons and reminds me, where was the exhortation part? I like the reproving part. I like the rebuking part, right? I think that's one of the reasons when I first heard Mark Driscoll preach back in seminary, I, I loved it. I never heard someone talk that way that would be so blunt to say, listen, get your crap together, right? There's, I'm like, whoa, whoa, is this my hockey coach or, or uh, is this a pastor? Because I'm not really sure. They're kind of bleeding together right now, but that's what I thought. I was like, whoa, I just responded so well to that. To have someone be so blunt and say, what you're doing is wrong. Knock it off. Knock it off. And so I I love that. And so for me, I I struggle with this, focusing so much on the reproving and the rebuking part, the exposing sin, right? Because honestly, like, we need to expose sin in our lives. 
so much sin. But then there's that other part, that exhortion part. Timothy, you rebuke, you reprove, right? Don't hold back! And then you build them up. You build them up. Makes me think of, some of you can relate, those moments when your parents, you know, they say, well, this is going to hurt me way more than it hurts you. And it always did hurt. And there I'm getting my behind paddled. And then the tears start flowing. And then there's mom, and she's hugging me, and I'm crying, and then she's rocking me. This is when I was a little boy. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> and then she's rocking me, and then she's praying for me. Right? The reproof, the rebuke, it exposes sin, right? It deals with sin. But then there's the exhort part. I have to remind myself not to forget that. Because I, I, can, I can really hammer in hard on those two while neglecting the other one. No, no, exhort. Okay, now you're done with the, re- the rebuking? Okay, now, now you're done with the proving? Okay, build them up, Timothy. Build them up. Encourage them, Timothy. Encourage them, Timothy. And oh, by the way, do this with complete patience because, Timothy, your patience is going to be put to the test because there are going to be people, no doubt, that you're just going to get angry with at the church. And you might just lose patience, just want to throw in the towel and quit. I've been there. So do this, Timothy. Do this thing with complete patience and teaching. And oh, by the way, that teaching part is important because you say, teaching what? This is really important, right? Teaching what? The Bible. This teach the Bible, right? It's important because I make mistakes because any pastor makes mistakes. So this is put forward. We're rebuked. We're approved. This is exposing our sin and we're dealing with things maybe we don't really want to deal with. Maybe, maybe the pastor didn't even state it, but we're like, oh, yeah, he didn't actually say it, but, but there's stuff I've got to deal with, right? Through the teaching of this. And then we, we conclude with verse 3 and 4, and he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That sound doctrine is healthy. In fact, that the word actually means to be healthy, that sound doctrine, but they don't want to hear it. They want to have their ears tickled. They're wandering off into myths. That, that word myths, it really can refer to, as one commentator says, any type of religious error. Which is why when he says, be ready in season and out of season, I think not only does that phrase refer to Timothy, the fact that he might be afraid to actually preach the, the full word of God, but I think in season and out of season also refers to his hearers. What's the state of his hearers? What's the state of the people in his church? Timothy, you better shut your mouth. You don't talk about money. No. We don't talk about... No. You don't, you don't talk about sin. Okay? We want, we want the, the lollipop, cotton candy. That's it. You tell us how great we are. That's it. Don't step on our toes. We want to come in. We want... The exhortation, but that's it. We want to hear just what we want to hear. I imagine it's a scary thing. Imagine it's a scary thing to hear, especially for Timothy, to be afraid. Being afraid, that's a real fear. If if I am doing the thing that Paul's telling me to do, people might not like it. They might be mean to me. I think that's what Paul would have told Carl Lentz before he went on The View. 
Don't be afraid. They might not like you. They might be really, really mad at you, but don't back down. You be ready in season and out of season, Carl, to bring the word, to preach the whole truth. Don't hold back. Because at the end of the day, God's going to hold God's going to hold us accountable. God's going to hold us responsible. Are we more concerned about whether someone's going to like us so long as we say exactly what they want us to hear or say exactly what they want us to say? Are we more concerned about that? Or when we hear God's word proclaimed, do we struggle with that cynical hypercritical, unrealistic expectation. Maybe. I still do sometimes. I do. But the fact is, is regardless of what place we're at spiritually right now, the understanding we see is, Timothy, I got it. You're at a low point right now. You're struggling. I see that. Keep struggling. Don't be content with where you're at. If you and the Lord aren't where you should be, don't be like, well, it's just how it is. Says who? Persevere. Keep going. I'm calling you out because at the end of the day, you know, you know, Timothy, God is a just God. He'll hold all men accountable. How much more is that true for you? For us? Oh, that we might have the courage to overcome the challenges, the obstacles. Oh, that we might be receptive when we hear things that maybe we don't like to hear or don't want to hear, but it's true. Let a wise man strike me. It is a kindness. For when he strikes me, it is oil to my head. As the band comes, I'd like to pray for us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. I pray that you would give us courage in, in the midst of just tough life circumstances. It is sometimes unpopular or just not cool. I think more and more we see to not be a Christian or to hold biblical views and beliefs. God, help us. Help us to have the courage to remember that you didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love of self-control. Therefore, we need to use the gifts that we have. We need to be engaged. We need to be on mission, on a mission to make disciples because there's people that we know right now in this city who if they died, they'd go to hell. Help us to care enough about them, to be intentional enough with them. God, protect us from the temptation to only want to hear sermons or, or preaching that makes us just feel really, really good. We need you, Jesus. We always do. Make us more like the person that Paul is desiring for his young protege, Timothy. Timothy.